The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. get as we move forward. Revelation chapter 5, reading from the ESV this morning. And it says, then I, of course, the I being John, John on the island of Patmos in 90s AD, somewhere in Greece, saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I, again, that's John, saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began, again, this is John, I, John began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And so, verse 5, one of the elders said to me, Weep no more, for behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent upon all the earth. And verse seven, he went and that being the lamb speaking of Christ here. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. That's the father seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by the blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language, people and nation. And verse 10, you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I, John, looked, in verse 11, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands upon thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is within them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever. You think that'd be enough. And ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Can you realize why this might be a two week lesson uh, as we get down to it? We actually scheduled for the last uh, couple weeks of August here or middle of August to be two weeks. We'll see how far we get, but I want you to see why he's worthy to be worshipped this morning. He is the slain sovereign, capital S on sovereign. This is Jesus Christ. Will you bow with me this morning as we go before our Lord? Father, thank you once again for your word. Thank you that you've given us your word. Thank you, Lord, that this vision into heaven is a necessary vision for us here on this earth as we go through these times that we live in. And every person of every time until kingdom come lives, needs to see you, Father, seated on the throne. But equally, Lord, we need to be reminded of the one who came out from the throne, the slain sovereign, our risen Lord, Jesus Christ, of whom all these things are said and all these things are true. 
Father, we want to be in the heavens, in our minds, in our spirits here today as we worship you, as we partake of the supper, the table, the Lord's table later on. But Father, may we realize that even speaking of your sovereignty is the most practical application point we can take away. You really have the whole world in your hands. And so, Father, we are ever grateful. And, Father, we will praise you forever and ever and ever. We ask you give us wisdom now. Speak through me as you will. Open our eyes. Open our ears. Keep us awake. We pray these things in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. Amen. may be seated. Thank you. Well, these are days, aren't they, in which we live are certainly dark and dangerous. And even in the last 20 years or so, since I've been a young man in ministry, I can tell you that things have changed. I mean, I can just give you a list of things I came off with the top of my head. Terrorists threaten our national security. That there used to be a day, even some, uh, well, 22 years ago, where you could walk on a plane without going through security to the point of being shaken down. Russia is threatening expansion. North Korea is aiming its missiles at the west coast of the United States and all the surrounding area. Iran is promising the death and annihilation of Israel. Iraq has become a breeding ground for anarchy. Uh, Islam is boasting it will destroy the West, and more specifically, those people of the book, the Jews and Christians. Atheism is rampant. People don't know what gender they were or are or were created to be. The global economy is teetering on the brink, and it would only take one crisis, and it almost was the COVID crisis a couple years ago or recently that sent everything into oblivion. Many viruses have had any thinking person concern from Ebola to COVID to whatever else is in there. And agendas from every political, ideological standpoint are wanting to stamp out everything you believe in every school and every place your kids are. The world is a dark and dangerous place. But in light of these things, the future seems more uncertain than it ever has been. But I want to remind you what the Bible says, and this will be on the screen for you. Psalm 112, 6 and 7. For the righteous will never be moved, and he will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. It's not that he never gets bad news, but he doesn't fear it. Why? Because he trusts in God who governs bad news for good things and good ends. So what will it take and what will it look like for our children years from now, our grandchildren years from now? What will it be for us as a church five years from now? I mean, we ask ourselves, is there any hope? Is there anybody who can take this world as it is? And I listed some, and you can give more reasons it's a dark and dangerous place. Is there any reason for confidence or optimism? Is there any real cause for encouragement in this world that we live in today? And where is God in the midst of all of this? That's where I think Revelation 5 speaks to us today. Because if we do not believe in the sovereignty of God, the big idea will say, we would lose our minds. But he is upon his throne. Therefore, we will, like the psalmist in Psalm 112, not fear. The God who rules all things is not rattled by the chaotic affairs of men. His plan will march on. Your pain, sister, brother, is not random. Your suffering is not meaningless. And your trial is not without God's purpose. He is on his throne. And like that children's song, you can sing it with me if you want to. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his wide world. Thank you, Jeff. Jeff got that. And that song about kids that we sing is true. And so I want you to see that God is making all things new. And he has a plan for your pain. He has a plan for this world. But sometimes we got to get out of this view and look 
at a wider view of what God is already doing in the heavenly of heavens. In Revelation 5, then, three reasons why the Lamb of God, Jesus, is sovereign and he's worthy of your worship. We're going to see probably mostly today the first two points. He's the Lord of history. He's, and we'll have this up on the screen later. He's the Lord of victory and he is the Lord of glory. I want you to remember where John is being written from. John is writing at an island similar to Alcatraz. We had one of our families out that way recently at the island of Alcatraz where the prisoners were sent and no one could ever escape from. So was Patmos where John is at. And in the midst of such a dark hour, the church needed to be encouraged. And the church needed to be able to see into heaven and have the veil pulled back to see what God was doing for all eternity. That's what God did last week in Revelation 4, Nelson explained, as he's doing again here in Revelation 5. The church needed a heavenly guided tour. The church needed a vision of the future to stay faithful in the present. And so this scene depicts Christ's return to heaven some 2,000 years ago after his death, after his burial, after his resurrection, after his ascension. You ever wonder what Jesus was up to during that time? Revelation chapter 5. And so we will see the timing of this text. And I pray that God will, will use it to remind us that he is in control, church. That he has got the whole world in his hands. And what others mean for evil, God means for good. And that the building of his church is God causing all things to work together for his good and our glory. And we do have reason to hope because God is on his throne. And that's not just a, a slogan we throw out when bad times come. It is reality. If you are struggling in your life right now, you need to be reminded through Revelation 5 that God is on his throne. And he doesn't just care about all the things in the future. He cares about you right here, right now, whatever you're going through. That is the amazing God that we have. That is God who is reigning, and he is God who is good for us. First thing I want you to see, reason number one, to worship this God who is worthy of worship and worthy of our praise, is that Jesus Christ is the Lord of history. Jesus Christ is the Lord of history. And you will see that in verses 1 through 5. Now, I want to remind you that John is writing this on the Lord's Day. We learned that back in chapter 1. It's a Sunday. It's the resurrection day. And he's caught up into heaven, whatever that means. It was an out-of-body experience. But when John sees heaven, I want you to notice what he does not see first. He does not see streets of gold or gates of pearl or, or they will be there or even the river of life. He sees a fixed throne and one seated on said throne. Look at verse 1. Then I saw the right in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. As Nelson preached last week, all of heaven in Revelation 4 is caught up in the praise of him and he is seated on the throne. It is God the Father. And he says, I saw in his right hand. Now I want you to know that God the Father, like the Holy Spirit, is spirit. That Jesus the Son came and he took on what? He took on flesh. There is some working here that he says, when I saw in his right hand, that John is trying his best to describe for you what he is seeing in this heavenly vision. That is a place of greatest authority at the right hand. And notice what he had in the right hand. He had a scroll, or your Bible might say book, perhaps. He sat on the throne, and as he sat on the throne, he holds a book. But as he's seated, I want you to know that he's ruling, he's reigning, he's residing, he's governing, and he's seated. 
And as our dear friend of many years gone by, R.C. Sproul said many times that there is no maverick molecule in this universe. God is on his throne and he is superintending. He is controlling everything. And we'll get to that more as we go on. But he holds a book in his hand. Well, what is this book? Notice what it says about the book first. It says it is written on both sides. Now, for us, that doesn't sound too bad because when you have a Bible, you have a page, it's written on both sides for ink and space and time and all those things. But in those days, to have something written on two sides was very unusual. Even the edicts of a king would usually be written only one time. And that is unusual. It is so unusual that whatever is written on this book or this scroll is so overwhelming that even God himself has to cover a page on both sides to get the message across. It's a lengthy book or scroll. It's detailed. It's not just a survey or a summary. It is written on both sides. It's exhaustive. It's precise. And what does this mean? Well, we're going to get to that in just a second. But I want to argue with you that I believe that the greatest argument what is written in those scrolls is exactly what Revelation 6 is going to unpack for us in the next couple weeks. Look at Revelation chapter 6. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. And I heard the four creatures say, verse 1 of chapter 6, with a loud voice. And I looked, and behold, a white horse and its rider with a bow and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering to conquer. What is the scroll? What are the seven seals? It seems to be it's God's eternal plan for the world. It is his unalterable, settled, fixed, irrevocable plan. And it's sealed. No man, no angel, nothing can change what is written in it. It is sealed by God himself. No eye has seen it. No angel has read it. Only God has written it, and it's written on both sides. It is God's plan. He's Lord of history because of God's plan. What is in the book? Some say it is the book of life. I don't have time to chase that rabbit, but that doesn't seem to be in play here. We'll read about that in Revelation 21 down the road and chapter 20. Some say it's a title deed to the earth, that this is God giving up to his son all that's on the earth. Well, that's already been done before the creation of the world. It seems to me that this is God's predetermined plan for human history written on the scroll. And in doing so, every event that would precede the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and every event that we see now until that time is written on the scroll. And the only one who can see it, the only one who can author it, is God himself. And those are the seven seal judgments that open it up in Revelation chapter 6. So here's the summary. God is going to break each seal of those seals on that scroll as we enter into what most people think of the fireworks of Revelation in the coming weeks. So what is in there? It is the judgment of God. It's the prescriptive, pre-written, preordained final acts of God himself. The salvation of souls, the judgment of unbelievers, the reward of the faithful servants, etc., etc., etc. Everything in the book is written right there. But only one can open it because only one had a plan for it, and that is God himself. Church, I just want to thank God today, don't you, that God has history in his hands. He has your life in his hands. Job 19 says, in him is the breath of all creatures and the life of all mankind. God has not forgotten you. You are not forgotten. Exodus 2 reminds us that he sees, he knows, and he understands what you are going through. The God who seals it all together 
cares for you enough that his eye is on you. You are the apple of his eye, to use another scripture. Don't forget that. But I also want you to know that history is not up for grabs by whatever political party wants to take it over. God has already preordained and pre-recorded the future. He includes you in it. But that is a great joy for you because you don't have to worry about it. Why did Jesus tell you, don't worry about what? Tomorrow for today has enough trouble for itself. Plan, prepare, work hard, manage your life and your family well, but know at the end of it all, God is sovereign. He's the Lord of history because of his plan. And that is good news for us. Second thing he is Lord of history of because he is Lord of heaven's problem. He is Lord of heaven's problem. Look at verses two through four. And John writes this. He says, and I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. What is heaven's problem? Heaven's problem is, is that no one so far has come forward to break open the seals on this book that God has written. And John sees this with a singular vision, this problem that is here. You notice in verse 2 that he sees a strong angel. We don't know who this is. It could be, as many of you are thinking, maybe Gabriel, whose name literally means strong angel. But he doesn't specify his name. It's All we know is it's, it's not important because Christ is what's central in this chapter. What is he doing in verse 2? He's proclaiming with a loud voice. He's not whispering. He's not muttering. He's not blabbing out of both sides of his mouth. He's proclaiming to some extent this angel is with a loud voice. And what is he saying? He's saying who's worthy? Who's able? Who's capable? Who has the authority? Or who has the secret key or password to open this thing up? And open it and break its seals. Basically, whoever can open the book controls history. You know, I know many of you love Indiana Jones and uh, the, 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 Cru- the Last Crusade, the Raiders of the Lost Ark, and all those things. And you know, fictitiously and probably historically to some degree, the Nazis tried to find the Ark of the Covenant. Because they believed in their mismatched religion and philosophy and evil people they were, that if they could get control of the Ark of the Covenant, that they could control history. Well, I hate to tell it to them, even 80, 90 years on, but it's only this person, only one who opens the scroll of verse 1 who has control over all of history. But that was heaven's problem. And notice what verse 3 says. No one. I mean, how discouraging would this be? John is in heaven, and no one can open the seal. Now, we know the end of the story. We know Christ does. But is it all up for grabs as he left just to figure it out on his own? I mean, no angel, no saint, no earthly ruler, no priest, no devil, no demon, no pastor, no church was able to open the scroll. And this shows how much we try to control our own destiny, doesn't it? It shows how much we try to take over for God when God says, I really have this. Our problems are beyond us. Can I just say this as a word of application to us? Washington cannot solve our problems. In fact, Washington is probably, or Jefferson City, or Kansas City, or downtown Clay County, wherever you are with the seat of people in ruling powers, are probably the greatest problem. But it also starts with us. No one in New York, or London, or Moscow, or the Middle East can ever solve the problems that have this world. God, in his common grace, may give them wisdom to help solve something for a period of time, 
But the reality is, unless you were able to break the scroll that is mentioned here in verse 1, nothing else matters. So John cries. Look at verse 4. It may say it differently to you, but it says, And I began to, what's your Bible say here? Weep. You have that there? Wept or bitterly weeping. It's literally in the Greek there. It's, 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 uh, it's an intense weeping. I'm trying to think how to say it. It's, 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 just, it's overwhelming tears that cannot be stopped. Does that make sense? He just can't stop it. And it's bad now at the end of the first century. John is an old man, and he's so exasperated. He wants to be with his Lord like all the apostles are. But here he is on the earth. And as he stands, there seems to be no final triumph. He looks around, and no one is able to open it. And he just floods with tears because he fears that no one is able to solve the problem that's before him. It seems as though God will not have the last say, that his postponement is coming, that, that the wrapping up of human history is not there. It's almost like John feels there's no hope. There's no understanding. Perhaps how we feel on a day-to-day basis. There's a story told of Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King Jr., the African-American activist, but Martin Luther the Reformer. While he was young in his ministry, after he had nailed the 99 theses on the door, October 31st, 1517, I'm getting some head nods, so I guess we're all right. His wife was completely dressed in black. His wife's name was Katie. And she had a veil over her face as she was making breakfast, and she also wore a long dress. And as a good German would ask, good German husband, he looked at his wife, Luther did, and said, Katie, who died? And she said, God. So Luther said, so you're acting as if God has died? And what the context I did not tell you is, is Luther was about ready to throw in the towel. Luther was ready to give up reforming the church because he saw no fruit because there was no change around him. And guys, as we know, only a wife has such prophetic power to speak into the lives of their husbands. Amen? And it was a rebuke that Martin Luther needed to hear that God had not died, but his trust and his vision of God and his sovereignty had died. And therefore, his wife had to symbolically put on black to say God had died. And yet, God is on his throne And we need to be reminded of that too. Friends, God has not died. He is still alive. And no, I'm not talking about those cheesy movies from 10 years ago, God's not dead, one, two, three, and four. But I'm talking about God is overseeing all, and he's watching over you and all this world. He's got the whole world in his hands. That is heaven's problem. Secondly here, or thirdly here, Jesus Christ is Lord of history because he has a plan. He's heaven's problem. But he also, because he is he is because his power, he is sovereign. He is sovereign. Look at verses 5 and end of verse 5. And he says here, And one of the elders said to me, remember last week if you were here, the elders are mentioned. There are twelve el- or 24 elders, probably 12 representing the Old Testament uh, tribes and 12 representing the 12 apostles but really they're representing all of us. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more, for behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Praise God for interruptions in our lives. John needed this interruption to see what was before him. And this is an interruption we need to see. Look, when you pick up the paper, when you turn on the news, when you listen to the radio or whatever it is, you almost hit a point, don't you, where you can't take any more bad news. It just gets piled on like Job and piled on and piled on and piled on. 
And we need this unexpected interruption because, praise God, he wrote it down for us. You notice verse 5 says it's one of the elders. As I mentioned, these are probably 12 from the Old Testament, 12 from the New. Even in heaven, there's a sense of ruling, a sense of authority amongst God's people. And one of the elders said to me, and what a rebuke, what a loving rebuke. He's telling him basically, John, stop crying, man. If Tom Hanks were here, he'd say, there's no crying in baseball or something like that. If you've watched that show. But he's saying, stop weeping, stop weeping. I mean, can you imagine if someone was in my office for a a pastoral council meeting or Nelson's and we just looked at him and said, stop your crying, man. That has a lot of pastoral sensitivity to it, doesn't it? Not really. But he's telling him to stop crying. And, And it'd be inappropriate for us to say it, but this is in heaven. It's a little bit different. He says, behold, look, take notice, pay attention, remind yourself that the ship is not adrift without a captain, John. It is not subject to the wind or the tide or the weather or the circumstances. He tells him there is a captain who is presiding and he names it this way. The lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. I am so glad he's the lion and not a wimpy Messiah of American or worldwide Christianity. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. But like a lion, he is kingly and he is ferocious and he is stronger than any adversary. First Peter 5 says that Satan prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And God says, oh, you haven't met my lion yet. His name is Jesus Christ. He's aggressive. He's dominant, he's conquering, he's devouring, and he is stalking his prey. Satan's days are numbered indeed. This is no cat like our fat cat in our house, the cat that is more domesticated than she knows and can't move up the stairs without a polite uh, helping from our kids at times. This is the sovereign lion that is from the tribe of Judah. And I want you to remember that history here. The entire Old Testament has traced its throne that he would come from the line of tribe of Judah, the seed of Jesse, the seed of David, and it would be the greater son of David. But notice how he is described here in verse 5. The root of David. Do you see that there? The root of David. He is seen as the lion of the tribe of Judah as coming out of David in most places of Scripture. But now he is the root of David, and David, as it were, is coming out of him. What I'm saying is this. In his humanity, Jesus is proceeding from the seed of David. But in his deity, in his God state, in his being God, David is proceeding from him. And what has he done? He has overcome. Speaks of his victory at the cross, church. It speaks of his power. He's overcome Satan, sin, and hell. He has Hades in his hand. He has demons in his hand. He has sin and judgment in his hand. He's overcome the sting of death. All the forces of evil came after him, and he rose up again and said, look at my hands, look at my side. Here I am. I'm risen indeed. He alone is qualified. He has the resume. Jesus does. He has the pedigree. He's overcome all threats. He's overcome all authority. He's overcome anyone and everything. And he alone can open the book that is before him. And he has a name, Revelation 19, that no one knows. I mean, you and I cannot comprehend how sovereign, in control, this God really is. 
Can I just stop for a second and ask you? Is your God that big? I shared in our Sunday school class, names don't, and you wouldn't know the person anyway. We were talking about what the passage in Jeremiah 42 and 43 taught us about God this morning. And I remember when we were preaching through the attributes of God several years ago at this church, there was a lady who came up to me after one of the services and said, that is not my God. Thank you for being honest, number one. Thank you for being here. You're always welcome. But you're going to have to show me what your God is. And that person walked out of here never to return because for her, that God was a God that gave health, that gave wealth, and prosperity like a one-armed bandit coming out of a Maristar casino that she could put enough money into and get a greater return than she put in. But our God says he is a God of all power. Is your God that big? Have we limited God to who he is in our minds or are our minds blown by what he is? He alone is worthy to open the book, to break its seals, to read its contents, to execute its terms, to to fulfill the divine will, and nothing will happen outside of that. Say, Darren, there's a lot of questions I have for you. Am I a puppet on a string? Did God allow this evil, that evil? Look, there's a lot of big questions we don't have time to chase right now, but I want you to frame your thoughts again. He is the Lord of history. Your history, our history, the church's history. That's why no church is ever so far gone if they are faithful to walking with Jesus Christ. That's why we can pray for a South Liberty Baptist Church at 291 in Ruth Ewing, who theologically went this way, but by God's grace came back. You have kids, you have grandkids, you have co-workers, you have workers, you have people you've prayed for for years and years and years and years and years and years. Don't give up on them. Keep praying for them. His power is bigger than all those things. Let's go on to point number two. He is worthy of worship because he is the Lord of history, but secondly here, because he is also Lord of victory. Verses six and seven. I think we are going to end on the second point today. Verses six and seven. John writes this. He says, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals, and between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent into all the earth. And he went out and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Look, John now turns his head to see the lion. But he's not prepared for what he sees. He sees a lamb. You may have noticed that in our title today, that he is the slain sovereign. Slain sovereign. He says, I saw between the throne of the four living creatures. And these four living creatures are the four living ones. I listened to Nelson describe them last week, and he did a very good job of a very tough topic. What are they? Who are they? But they're really just four guardian angels. No one can approach the throne except getting rid of them. And it's not some movie where you can like, you know, throw some confetti over here and your buddy sneaks behind the throne over there. That's not how this works. No one may access the throne. These are the guardians of the throne. But out of this victory, he sees a lamb standing. And I want you to know he is the Lord of victory first off because he is standing. He is standing. And this is interesting because it's a lamb standing, a sheep standing. He looks to see a lion, but he sees a lamb. I want to remind you throughout the Old Old Testament, 
that there was given a sacrificial lamb for the sins of the people. That is something you know well. And as he sees the lamb, he sees the only sacrifice for sins, the risen Jesus Christ. He did not see a Jesus that was still something else. He saw the risen Jesus. And he is victorious because he is standing. He's standing in triumph. He's standing in dominance and conquest. He's standing because he is indeed risen. He's risen indeed. He's alive forevermore. And he is fixed in victory. And he's fixed in standing authority. Our God in Jesus is standing. Well, pastor, what about the times where he sits at the right? Yes, but you got to remember the context here. Most commentators believe what you are seeing is a picture at the very <laughs> moment that Jesus came back from his ascension and there was the victory parade in heaven for all that was accomplished for God's glory and our good. What a picture that would have been. So he is standing but you notice also this lamb, this Jesus, is victorious because he was slain. Brother Don, in our Sunday school class this morning, has the King James. You might have the word smote, S-M-O-T-E. But it means, the word slain means to be mutilated or to be butchered for sacrifice. And that is the reality that happened at Calvary's cross. He was wounded for our transgressions. His face was as his beard was plucked from him. And the whips tore Jesus' literal back. It says further that as a crown of thorns was crushed on his skull, he was so disfigured that he was beyond the appearance of a man. Isaiah 53. So when Jesus died on that cross, he looked more like an animal than he did a man because of the treatment that he received at the hands of the Romans. And as he suffered it, he was slain on that cross. He was, he was literally killed. Muslims believe that Jesus died not really, that Judas took his place. You, you've heard that before, right? The swoon theory. They believe that Jesus was switched out. So again, they had like a those movies where they can hit time out and everybody freezes in, in time and space. And they somehow switched out Judas and Jesus. They threw Jesus in the tomb and because of the cool misty air, he revived himself back to life. Yeah, that takes more to believe that than it actually believes that Jesus actually came back from the dead. But that's, that's me. He was slain. He actually, physically, literally died on that cross. But he sees him victorious because he's standing, he's slain. But what about this? What about these seven horns? Did you notice that in verse 6? It says there were seven horns. And he says, between the throne and the lamb, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns. Are those literal seven horns? Perhaps. Whatever they represent, the number of seven is a number of perfection. Of completeness. The horns of an animal represent the power to inflict wounds or, or to cause damage or to defeat a foe. And I believe these seven horns are literal for what he saw, but it speaks of God's power. Literally, he's victorious because he was strong. You'll see on the screen as the next one. He was strong. He's omnipotent. He's dominant. He's all powerful. He's able to overcome. And he is overcome once for all. The seven horns, don't chase that. I mean, if you really look this up and you get some diehard revelation people, the seven horns are going to represent seven cities, seven uh, popes. Seven, I mean, it's weird. Don't lose the forest for the trees. What is revelation all about? God what, church? He wins. God what? Wins. wins. That's it. He's victorious. He's standing. He's slain. He's strong. 
But notice also, and this gets a little weirder, doesn't it? The horns, yeah, you can deal with that. But what about these seven eyes? And this is Jesus with seven horns and with seven eyes. He's victorious because he's searching. He's searching. Proverbs 15, the eyes of the Lord go to and fro, beholding the evil and the good. He's, he's omniscient. He knows all things. He's omnipresent. He sees all. He knows all. He possesses all insight. Nothing surprises God. God doesn't learn as he goes. He sees all that's ahead of him, all that's behind him, and all that's around him. I'm pretty sure moms have that skill here on earth, amen, <laughs> as life goes forward. Husbands know that. Kids know that. But he sees it all ahead and behind him. It's an invincible combination, and and all you can say is, hallelujah, what a Savior. Every wrong done to you, every injustice done to this world, everything this world thinks will not be seen, the Lord sees, he will bring to account. But Christian, I just want to encourage you with this as well. You too will stand before the judgment seat of God, even in Christ. There is the white throne judgment that we'll look at many chapters down the line for unbelievers. Where the book of life is open and all those not in the book of life are thrown into hell. That's a real thing. But there's also a judgment for us as believers to see what kind of treasures we get in heaven. And, and we unpacked that a couple weeks ago on Theology Tuesday, a little bit what that may mean. But the point is, you will stand before God and give an account for how you live for him. In your thoughts, in your heart, in your words, in your actions, whatever. But you need to know that. And finally, verse 7 here, he's victorious not only because he's standing, slain, strong, and searching, but he is also sovereign. Look at verse 7. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Who was seated on the throne. What we see is a slain yet now standing Lamb of God, the Lion of Judah, the Root of David. The lion now approaches the throne of God the Father, and what does he do? He took the book. What is that book? That book is what we talked about in verse 1. It's the predetermined plan of God. And he took it out of his right hand of him who sat on the throne. The son, freshly minted from his victorious resurrection and all the appearances that were there for the disciples and all who believed and his ascension in Acts 1, fresh from that, he walks in triumph, he walks up into a weeping John and he grabs the book from the Father, the book of everything that's about to come to bear and he pulls it down. He takes the reign of history, not just in the last days, but everything from the time he assumed the throne after his ascension until the present moment, today, until kingdom come. Christians, this is good news for you. If you learned anything about the book of Hebrews, is that Jesus is at the right hand pleading for you before the throne of God. Amen. You don't need a priest for that. You don't need a pastor for that. Though we're glad to help you seek the Lord. You have the Son of God. Peter proclaimed in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost, God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ. Ephesians 1.20, God has seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he has put all things in subjection under his feet, so that he is head over all things, even to the church. Tower View, I just want you to understand this too. We need to get this as a church. We need to know as we wait for his second coming, he is still reigning. He is still king over our dominion. 
Jesus has authority to convert enemies. Jesus has authority to overturn circumstances, to build his church. Even the gates of hell will not prevail against. He has authority to grant repentance, to offer saving truth. He has ability to open eyes, ears, and hearts of people who seem so stone cold, they make Pharaoh look like a choir boy in your estimation. He has the authority to bring workers to the harvest. He has authority to send forth missionaries and to take the proclamation of the gospel to the ends of the earth. He has authority to open a door that no man can close and to close a door that no man can open. This is our God. He can remove rulers. He can raise up the lowly. He can demote the high. He can guarantee the success of your prayers. He goes before you and everything written in that scroll and that book which contains your plans for your life, he has. And he's a gracious God. It's no wonder that Peter said in that same chapter, cast all your cares on him. Why? Because he cares for you. Do you understand how sovereign our Lord Jesus Christ is? That he could open up everything and give us the vision we need. However sovereign you may think he is, he is far beyond our highest, loftiest, and grandest thoughts. But he is the Lord of glory. He is the Lord of victory. Or excuse me, history and victory. Next week, I told you we wouldn't make it through it. And it's okay. There's a lot of good stuff here. Next week, maybe spilling into chapter 6 a little bit, we will see that Jesus Christ is the Lord of glory. If you're here today and you do not know this Lord of history and this Lord of victory, I want to tell you the only truth that you need to know is that he is the only Savior of the world. Kids, adults, if you're here today, I plead with you to come to know Jesus Christ. I exhort you, call you out, call you to the carpet. If you don't know Jesus and you died today, it's not this vision that you would have. There's a vision for that in Revelation 20. And it's not a good one. But if you're here today and you recognize you're a sinner, you recognize that you have failed miserably before this holy God, thank God that he sent forth his son Jesus to die for our sins. This is why we partake of the Lord's Supper so often, to remind us of what he did. If you're a Christian here today, Ben, I don't think you mind if I share this. We've been reading through a book. It took Ben and I a year to finish a book, but uh, we finally got it done. It was about the preaching of John Calvin and how he called people out. And one of the things Ben and I, as we were reflecting on this book last, I don't remember what day it was, brother, last midweek that we looked at this, is how a lot of pastors don't call you to do something, to urge you. Yeah, we might say, do this, do this. But really, like with all we are, consider this. Christian, if you're here today, you need to really consider whether you're trusting in yourself or whether you see God as sovereign on his throne. Trust him. Know him. Test him out and see what it's like. He's always going to be there, right there for you. He is sovereign. He's on his throne. You have nothing to fear. Yeah, you got family problems. You got financial problems. This church has problems. The pastors definitely have problems. Amen. But all of us can trust that God is on his throne. And we can trust that no matter what we face, he is unshakable, unalterable. And he has got us in his glory, in his mind, in his focus. I don't know what you're facing, and I can't solve it all. But I call you today, if your trust in Christ has wavered, may you check your heart and may you confess your sin. Because, friends, he is worthy of our trust and worthy of our worship, isn't he? 
Didn't we just sing a song about that? I think we did. Let's bow our heads in prayer. I'll invite our worship team up this morning. After we sing our last song, we'll give some instructions for the Lord's Supper. Thank you for being here today. We'll finish this up next week. Thank you for your grace. There's just so much good stuff here, guys. But may God be praised. Let's go before the Lord as we pray. Father, we thank you so much for the very fact that you are a sovereign, in-control God. But you're not distant from us, Lord, that we cannot approach you. Father, we can't approach you apart from your son, to be sure. But we thank you that in Jesus and only in Jesus do we have the truth that you are the God of unapproachable light. But when we come to you, Father, through your son, he has compassion on us because he has suffered as one of us yet without sin. So, Father, we come as Hebrews commands us to come boldly before the throne of grace. And, Father, I just simply pray for our church. I pray for my own heart, my family's heart, all the families here represented, that this week we would look to Revelation 5 as our source of strength to be reminded in this crazy and dark world where everything from policemen being shot in fairway to bombs going off in the lake of the Ozarks to wars being had in Ukraine to things happening in schools to all the cultural shifts to even things in our families that no one else but our eyes will see and yours. You are on your throne. You are sovereign. You are reigning and you are ruling for your glory and our good. Father, forgive our hearts if we have softened that, watered that down, put it to the side or said, oh, I know that already. But really, we don't live that out. By your grace, enable us, Lord. By your spirit, give us wisdom to do so. And again, we pray if there are any among us that don't know Jesus, from the youngest to the oldest, that they would see this one seated on the throne. Father, thank you so much. We thank you for your son who has overcome so that we can have eternal life. We pray this all in Jesus' name and God's people said, amen. Amen.